The worst kind of war is a civil war. War is terrible. War is an awful tragedy that humans would find reason to slaughter each other in such terrible ways. And I think as technology increases, the terribleness of war increases. Even to watch footage, documentaries of what war has done, it's not entertainment. It's awful. It's disgusting. And the worst kind of war is civil war. Maybe some of the children here have studied the American Civil War in your classes and you've looked at the different sides. I know there's even enactments, historical enactments of this to to remember what happened at that time. A terrible tragedy, really, in America's history. Uh, fighting not just for slavery, for state rights and other deeper issues too. Bloody battles, divided families, internal destruction and suffering. Civil war is a terrible thing. Christians, though, are engaged in civil warfare. Every true believer is involved in a civil war, spiritually, daily, in many cases, most cases. Not a physical war with guns and bombs and such, but even greater, and perhaps even more destructive at times, a spiritual warfare. Now, we often think, when we say the word spiritual warfare, we think, we think out there, like the novels predict, you know, picture it, Right? Angels and demons fighting and maybe prayer that will help them win. And there certainly is a cosmic conflict. We can't overlook that. And that certainly is a need to put on the spiritual armor, Ephesians 6. We know that. And yet there is something deeper, spiritually, internally, as it were, in our own lives, a spiritual conflict that takes place in the life of every true believer. And that's where the warfare begins. It's not out there that the battle is fought. Well, that too, cosmically, Revelation 12. But it's here where it begins, in the heart, a spiritual warfare, a civil war of the soul that rages, an internal conflict. Anyone who's struggled with an addiction knows what this is like. Fighting one side against the other, as it were. Destructive even at times. And we must fight. We must fight against internal sins, favorite sins, anger, pride, envy, greed, and and many others I'll be mentioning. And so this morning I want to focus with you actually from Paul's words, because I think that's what we see in Romans 7. Romans 7, I want to focus particularly on verses 21 through 25. And the theme this morning is the civil war of the soul. The Civil War of the Soul. Let me just read Romans 7 again, uh, 21 to 25. I'll just read verses 21 to 23 now. Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The civil war of the soul. Three thoughts to structure our study this morning. First, the internal conflict. 
Second, the, the heart cry that we see in this battle, the heart cry or heart confession. And third, life in Christ, a bit more briefly, the civil war of the soul. Now, Romans 7 is not an easy chapter to understand. And the book of Romans is not always the easiest book to understand. But it's God's word, and it's precious, and it's beautiful, and it's very instructive. And this morning, the Holy Spirit, in, his, in God's providence, has directed us to study this passage, the end of chapter 7. And Paul actually, actually, Paul is opening his heart here. He does it in a few places in some of his letters, and here he does it again. We see something inside this great missionary, this man of God, this wonderful example. Follow me insofar as I follow Christ, he says. And what a wonderful example he is. But we see something of the internal workings of his soul here in this, in this chapter. And we don't see it in many other places. We hear and there we do. Also in 2 Corinthians or chapter 12, for instance. But here we see this internal conflict. In fact, verse 21. I find then a law, he says. Actually, you could translate that, I experience. I find within myself, I experience within myself this conflict. And and then he goes on to describe the conflict. We know these verses well. I want to do good, but I find myself doing bad. I want to obey God and do the right thing, but I find myself disobeying God and doing the wrong thing. Verse 18 and 19, For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, he says, carnally, uh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. I, I want to do it. I want to do the right thing. But how to perform it? I don't find that. I don't experience that like I, I desire. For the good that I would, I don't do, and the evil which I would not, that I do. That's the struggle that Paul is describing, a personal struggle, an experience of his soul. He's describing it here for us. And I think we can relate. Children, I want to see your eyes. You know what it's like, don't you? Your mommy says, don't take that candy. But she's not around, and she's not watching, and there's a little voice inside that says, candy tastes good. I like candy. And maybe as we get older, then we have that voice that gives all the reasons. Well, she didn't say take the red one, but she didn't say anything about the green one. And you know, it's, it's inside, isn't it? And there's this struggle. We know that struggle. You want to obey your mom, and you want to do what is right. You want to please your father. And yet, and yet you find yourself, you want to obey, but you forget. Oh, I forgot again. Well, you kind of forgot again, but actually it wasn't forgetfulness. It was a lack of concern, a lot of lack of care. In fact, you wanted to do what you wanted to do, and what you wanted to do was not right. That's the struggle that Paul is talking about here. And as we get older, we disguise it better, but it's still there. Men, you resolve not to think those thoughts. You resolve not to look in that direction. When the temptation is there, you say, I'm not going to. I'm not. And you tell yourself you're not going to, and yet sin walks by. Sin walks by, and we look, and we look again. And it becomes lust, and it becomes sinful, very sinful in our hearts. Hate, sin against God, against others. 
or maybe the ladies here, you say you are happy with what God has given you and the family with which God has blessed you, and yet then you see the other family, and you see what they have and that you don't have, and you, and you start to say, but it's not fair. I, I worked harder for this, or if only my family were like this, or only if my situation was like that, and that little seed of discontent grows into a full weed that soon fills the whole house, the, the sin of discontent. You don't want to do it, and yet you find yourself doing it. And so, like the kids, like the children, we're just as naughty. We're just as naughty because those sinful desires are there. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Isn't that awful? We have the desire to do what is right, hopefully, but not the ability to obey. And Paul says then in verse 21, I find, I experience that when I would do good, evil is present with me. This is Paul's spiritual experience. And I'd like to guess that it's probably the experience of many of us here, if not most of us. Now, to understand, like I said, this is a difficult chapter, and to understand these verses, we need to see how they fit in the whole picture. That's very important. So let's just take a quick minute here and look at where these verses fit in the chapter and in the bigger picture of the book of Romans in Paul's theology, because that's what, theology, that's what Romans is, right? It's a, it's a systematic theology, kind of like the Bible doctrine books. It systematically goes through all the themes of doctrine, all the major themes, and that's what Paul is doing to us. And this book is about God's righteousness. Romans is all about the righteousness of God made known or revealed. And it starts in chapter 1 and 2 and beginning of 3 in the God's righteousness and the condemnation of sinners. And then chapters 3, second half, and chapter 4, justification, how we are made righteous, how God is righteous in making us righteous, actually through Christ. And then 5, 6, 7, 8, these are the chapters on sanctification, how we become holy, how we follow in the footsteps of Christ, true believers becoming like their Lord, becoming holy by the power of the Spirit of Christ in them, how sinners become sons and daughters of God. And then it goes on, sovereign election, chapter 9, and God's work in history, and it ends with Christian ethics to do the right thing, to live the right way. That's the book of Romans. And chapter 7 is clearly in this section, right, toward the end of the section on sanctification, the, the, the life of the believer, and that's very important, I'll come back to that. It's the place of the law in a believer's life, chapter 7. And particularly uh, toward the end of the chapter, it's dealing with how we relate not under sin, but under grace. Believers have been justified by faith in Christ alone. Believers are now dying to sin and living to righteousness, chapter 6. Believers are not under the law, legally enslaved to it, as if we we have to perform something to earn our salvation. No, we're now under grace, and yet, and here's our section, and yet though we are under grace, under God's good law, yet there's still that internal conflict, laws at work, principles at work that are causing this civil warfare. Sin remains in our life, and yet we're not under the power of sin. And yet sin still influences us, controls us even, even though we are becoming holy by God's grace and the power of His Spirit. 
That's where this, these verses are, this section is in the book of Romans. The believer's war against remaining sin. The Holy Spirit lives in the heart, as chapter 8 will unpack, but there's still sin in our lives. Kind of like when Iraq, remember Iraq, the, the coalition forces captured the country of Iraq or Afghanistan maybe later. We can use that example too, although that's a bad example. But Iraq, let's use that example. The coalition forces captured Iraq, controlled most of the country, and yet there were still here and there patches of insurrection, of opposition, right? A conflict and fighting that had to be overcome. And we know the rest of the story didn't end very well. But that's what it's like in a believer's life. The Holy Spirit is in the heart of a believer by God's grace. Sin is, 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 convict, is, is confessed, and yet there is still opposition, still insurrection at times. There's still conflict and uh, warfare. Now, that's what Paul is discussing, big picture here. Let's zoom in now and look at verse 22 and 23, because that's exactly where this conflict is, is most clearly explained. Verse 22 and 23, three dimensions to these, um, these verses that I think unpack them helpfully. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Listen to how often the word law is used. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Four times the word law is used. You caught that, right? And Paul is actually using the word law in four slightly different ways. And so I'm going to unpack it and give four descriptions to this word law as Paul uses it here. First, the law of God. Actually, it's four relationships to the law. The law of God is first. And that's the Ten Commandments, the moral law. We read them together as we began this morning. God's ten rules for all of life that guide, from which all our ethics, all our decision-making is, is derived. Eternal, unchanging, God's righteous law from creation to consummation. The Ten Commandments. The law of God. But then he talks about the law of the mind, the law of my mind. And this is the desires, this is the internal principle, because you see the word law can be translated, not just Ten Commandments, but internal principle or motivating factors or motivating principles by which we live. We, we know people that are very principled, right? They live according to principles. They don't break their own rules. And Paul is talking about law in the sense of principle here, and he talks about the law of the mind, our desires, the desires of our heart. Actually, when someone believes in Jesus... The Holy Spirit is given, right? And a new nature is given. And it's that new nature that wants to live according to God's law, he, that wants to please God. New desires, the will to do good, the law of the mind. And yet, and so the law of God externally, internal law of the mind that is good. And yet, there's also a law of sin that Paul speaks about here. That's the, that's the evil out there. That's the powerful, a power of sin in the world, bad authorities, bad structures, and of course the associated guilt that comes with it when we sin against God's law, criminal power. The law of sin 
And then Paul also says, but I see another law in my members. It's part of me. I see another law part of me, another principle at work, another motivation that can be seen, evil passions of my sinful heart. The old nature that remains there and the desires of that old nature that remain within. God's law, our new nature by grace, evil in the world, and the old nature that remains. And there's conflict. There's warfare that's taking place. This conflict of the heart, another law. That's the reality that Paul observes. And he goes on. The reality results, well, there's action. In fact, look at the language. Waging war is how you could translate this. Warring against. I see another law, warring against. That's the spiritual warfare, the battle zone, as it were, fighting, trying to kill, trying to take captive. In fact, that's another word, trying to control, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. And so the new nature wars against the old nature, and the old nature wars against the new nature, and the old nature tries to bring the person into captivity to the law of sin, the evil forces at work, and it goes back and forth like a, like a tug of war, and, and you're not sure who's going to win at times, at least from our perspective, waging war, taking captive, influencing, controlling. You know what it's like when sin walks by and we have that internal struggle in our minds. When discontent, when envy enters our life, when we want to have that candy, and it's not a green candy, it's a red candy. When we know to do good, but evil lies present, and it's this tug of war. But it's not just like a game where one team is going to lose. This is serious. This is dealing with spiritual consequences, and it creates division. It's taking place in the heart, even the place where the Holy Spirit lives. I'm thinking of Bunyan's Warfare, Holy Warfare. Beautiful book, isn't it? And it really captures this well. It's taking place in the city, there's conflict. In the members, Paul says, it's not just out there. It's literally my sinful body parts are part of the conflict, the territory that's under siege. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Do you know what this is like? We know what it's like to wrestle with sin. All true believers know this experience all too well. Now, I said all true believers because we have to be careful here. We need to be precise. We must not confuse what Paul is saying because then we, then we have wrong theology and then wrong practice. This is not Paul speaking before he was a believer, you know, when he was still persecuting uh, the Christians and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is not Paul then. This is Paul many years later when he's writing a, a carefully worded systematic theology for, for the city, the Christians in Rome. Because he delights, he rejoices in God's law. When he was a legalist Pharisee type, he wasn't rejoicing in God's law. He was in slavery to God's law, as all legalists are. 
But this is Paul. This is the echo of every true believer who is fighting against their indwelling sins. Nor is this a believer fighting against sin out there. We've we got to be careful with this as well. Maybe you've heard people say, it's not my fault the devil made me do it. Have you heard that excuse? And it's a very convenient excuse, isn't it? It's not my fault I forgot to brush my teeth. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault that I had those thoughts when I saw that thing. The devil made me do it. No, no. He gets too much blame, the devil does. It's sin in our own hearts that opens the door to his power and control. It's sin in our own hearts that takes us captive, that wages war. Nor is it just sin out there, like sin in society. This is a liberal concept, isn't it? We're not sinful. Everyone is good, but the structures of society needs to change because it's social structures that are sinful. Well, it's true. Many social structures are sinful, but that's not the, that's not the source of sin. The source of sin is Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, internal sin, and that results in sinful structures. And so while we can try to change the structures, it's our own hearts that need to change and change first by grace. And then there's one more we have to avoid, or two more actually. There was an error that was creeping into the church, even in Paul's day, but we see it later in John's writings, the error of the, the Gnostics. They said, no, but my soul, my soul is good. God has made my soul, as a believer, God has given me a good soul, but it's the body, it's the flesh that's sinful. And so my soul is good, but, but it's ugh, this terrible thing. My body always makes me sin. I've actually seen this uh, error quite commonly today in many charismatic churches um, for various reasons. You'll see that in these churches as well. But no, Paul is speaking about the person, the whole person, soul and body, not just an external conflict, but this is waging war in the heart. It's taking place in the very control center of our lives, isn't it? And we know that when we're fighting against sin, it's us who desires it. It's sad. It's true, though. It's us who desires it. This is a personal, spiritual struggle. And all true believers know this struggle, at least at times. We know this struggle. Consider the details of this bloody civil war. The armies, well, there are conflicting principles, conflicting laws. The law of the mind made righteous in Christ, the law of flesh, still holding on to insurrection. The battleground, like I said, is the control center, our hearts, our members, as Paul says. And what's at stake? Like I said, this is not just a tug-of-war game that one side gets pulled in the mud. Okay, everyone has a great time, go wash off again, it was fun. No, no, this is a spiritual warfare. Who's going to win? in your battle with your favorite sin? Who's going to con gain control of the heart? You see, allegiance of the heart and holiness of life. That's what's at stake here. Holiness in life. Will sin rule or will grace abound? And then allegiance of the heart. Peace or conflict? Faith or fear? Victory over sin or slavery to sin? 
eternal life or eternal death? Which side are you on? Who is the true you? Can you say with David, I delight in the law of God? Unbelievers, unbelievers know this struggle only from the outside because the Holy Spirit has not created within them a new heart, new desires, a new nature. They only know the struggle from the outside. Yes, they resist sin because the consequences are bad. But they're controlled by sin, and eventually sin wins. And the devil's wise. He allows you to, you know, win at times. But the, the, the scrimmage, maybe he allows. He allows you to say no to sin, to temptation, in that, that case. But unbelievers are unable to overcome. It's like a man addicted to alcohol. He can't say no. I've worked with a number of addicts, and they just, somehow, they're just drawn back to the same mess that they've created all over again. Let's look at your life. Rather, you look at your life. Do you know this conflict? Where are you in this conflict, this battle against sin? How do you deal with it? Which side are you fighting for? You say, well, I'm a serious young person. I've, I've grown up in the church, gone to Christian school. I'm a decent person. I'm serious-minded young. I'm not associated with a wild crowd. I, I don't do bad things on the weekends. And, I, you know, I, my cell phone is fairly clean from sin, mostly anyway. And I'm a serious person. I'm a, I'm a good person anyway. I'm not like others. But what about your heart? What about your heart? Is it on the Lord's side, or is it still overrun by addiction to sin, by Satan and the law of sin at work? Paul admits that he is not able to deal with this addiction to sin. He confesses it. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. It's not I, I don't have it. I'm not able to. That's what Paul confesses in this battle. In fact, let's look in the second point at his heart cry, the heart cry of Paul in this conflict. In a civil war, if you, if you were to reenact the civil war, perhaps you would, you, would, you would go back and study the history and the various sides, and you would look at the media, the, the messages produced by the, the commanding offices, the war office of the one side, and you would look at the, the messages on the other side. Actually, in modern warfare, it's often about, all about positioning in social media, isn't it? And each one projecting a particular image, and even if today in the conflict between Russia and, and, and Ukraine or the West... Um, each are trying to project an Im- image of confidence, and, but you don't believe that. Who of us believes the media these days, right? It's full of lies and projections and, and heresy and false, false statements. You go to the trenches. That's when you know what's happening. 
to see in the ground. And many of us have talked to people in Ukraine, for instance. We've said, How, how's it going? What's happening? We talk to pastors there. We hear reports. We want to know what's happening on the tr- in the ground, on the trenches. And that's what it's like often when we, see, when we see people, when we see each other in church here, family, friends. We see them from the outside, dressed nice Sunday morning, right? Everything's fine from the outside. The image that we project is okay. Decent people. But what's happening in the soul? We're, we're talking today about the soul, the, the spiritual experiences. What's happening on the inside in this fight against sin? Many people aren't really fighting against sin. Unbelievers, they just carry on. Decent people looking nice, but on the inside, well, they quite enjoy sin, thank you. Uh, we like to, as long as we can get away with it. But what's happening in the life of a believer? What's happening in the soul? That's what we want to look at now. And we call this self-examination, don't we? To examine uh, the state of our souls, our heart confessions, from the front lines, as it were, from the inside out. What's taking place? And that's what we see in Paul here, too. He admits the problem. He describes it very well, verses 21, 22, 23. But then in verse 24, we see Paul's heart confessions, his cries, as it were, from the battle, battlefront. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The great man, the missionary hero, the man of God who wrote half the New Testament by, by the Spirit, this man says, I'm overwhelmed in this fight against sin. He, he, it seems, anyways, to him that his sins are winning, chained in slavery to this body of death. He, the, literally, the picture here is he's dragging around a corpse. He's chained to this corpse. And he's not saying his body is bad, his soul is good, but he's saying in him, in his members, he finds these terrible things, disgusting sins. I die daily, he says in another place, killing his own lust, his passions, crucifying the flesh and the desires of the heart. This is Paul's confession from the front lines, as it were. Is this also your heart cry at times? Oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am. Is this an echo of your heart as you wrestle with sin? Perhaps you've fallen again in this past week. Your favorite sin. And you thought you would overcome it. You thought you were doing okay. And then, there you go again, flat on your face, in the mud, all over again. And maybe again. And then again. How disgusting. How disgusting when we consider what that looks like, especially in light of Christ's forgiveness and His love and His tender mercies. And we've done it again. Our favorite sin. How foolish, how stupid, and yet we're enslaved to it. Loathsome in God's sight, loathsome even to us, at least the good part, right? The new, new, new members, the new nature. How can I sin so easily when God forgives so freely? And yet, O oh, wretched man that I am. That's Paul's Desperate confession from the front lines, as it were. Let's look at his confession. There's actually six, conf- five confessions that he makes here. Five heart confessions of a faithful Christian that we see in these verses. The first one, I've already touched on it. O wretched man that I am, verse 24a. 
You see, we know, believers have come to know, have come to learn it by experience. We don't try to hide our sins anymore from the Lord. We may still try to hide them from others because we're proud of our own selves, perhaps. But with the Lord, we just, we just confess. When we've sinned, even when our hands are still dirty with sin, we run to the Lord because we say, oh, wretched man that I am. We confess. And that's what Paul is doing here, a confession of sin. He confesses. He sees himself as God sees him. He calls sin what it is, disgusting rebellion against God's love. And that's what we are to do as well. Have you fallen again in this past week? Well, don't look back. Look forward. Confess it. Run to Jesus Christ. Disgusting man that I am. Disgusting person that I am. Our natural tendency is like Adam and Eve to run and hide, right? Run for the bushes, right? Even like a child who knows he's naughty, hides in his bedroom under the bed. That's Adam and Eve. But the second Adam has taught us a better lesson. He invites us. He calls us. He says, come. Come confess your sin. O wretched man that I am. We admit our guilt and shame and depravity. And then Paul's second confession, the second part of verse 24, who shall deliver me? And this we can't overlook. This is very important. You see, Paul doesn't just confess that he did the wrong thing. Yes, I was wrong, I sinned. He goes farther. He admits his addiction to sin and the powerfulness of sin in his life, really the overpowering nature of sin in his life, slavery to sin. Because that's going deeper, isn't it? The one is the plant, the other is the root. Paul is going at the root here. It reminds me, I was working with some homeless people in Louisville many years ago, there was a man, I've used this example before elsewhere, there was a man who was addicted to alcohol, and it wasn't just a small addiction, he drank an awful lot. And yet he was pretending to be a Christian, this man. It was a sad, really sad situation. He had very little money, and he was pretending to be a Christian, and yet, you know, you'd, you'd go there in the morning, you'd find him drinking. Um, and he was busy encouraging others to help them along, and yet he was still drinking. He wasn't saying no to sin. He was even really denying that his problem was as serious. Yes, it's not good that I'm drinking, but I've, I've cut it back from you know, four beers a night to three beers a night. That kind of thing. I don't remember the details. And yet he himself was addicted. He didn't even know his own slavery to it. And I think many people are living like that today. Even believers, there are sins in our lives. We know they're wrong. But we don't know how addicted we are to those sins and how much they actually control us until we actually try to stop and we find out how ugly and disgusting and powerful they might be. Jesus said that to the Laodicean church. He said, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, Paul here is admitting not just sin, but his addiction to it, his slavery to it. Who can deliver me? It's not in me. I cannot overcome this myself. That's what he's saying here. He admits, and that's what we need to do as well. Even the indwelling sin in our lives, believers, 
Admit it. It's an addiction too powerful for us to change. Have you confessed this? Has this been your heart cry? Becoming converted doesn't mean you are free from sin. It means the process of addressing sin only is beginning. There's a lot of work to be done. You've only just begun. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's praying for deliverance. Who will deliver me? Who will rescue me? I can't do it myself. But then his third confession, this is, this is where we see the turning point from, from, from despair to hope. We see a turning point here, verse 25. You know, many people stop at verse 24 when they do self-examination and they stop right there as if full stop, period, chapter over. But that's a dangerous trap of the devil. Never stop with verse 24. The chapter ends with verse 25. And what does Paul do? By faith, really a confession of faith, he cries out, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't end in despair. He doesn't end in himself. He looks outside of himself. That's the turning point now in this struggle with sin. Also for us, not ending in ourself, but looking outside of ourselves in hope to Jesus Christ. He answers his own question, who's going to deliver me? It's Jesus Christ who delivers me. God, through Christ, has power over sin and death and hell. Christ has died to pay for sin. Christ has risen again victorious over sin. Christ has crushed the serpent's head, broken the power of evil. Christ is on the throne with all power and glory, ruling all things. Jesus Christ has power. Who can deliver us? It's Christ alone who can deliver us. And he does. He has promised to do so. And would God ever break his promise? Christ himself sealed the promises with his own blood. Would he go back on his word now? He has promised. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that promise? So all those ugly skeletons in our closet, all those disgusting things that have come to mind maybe as I was, I've been speaking this morning, all of that, if you haven't yet, by all means, take it to Jesus. He has promised to deal with it, not just forgive it and take away the guilt of it, but to cleanse you and to clothe you with righteousness so that in God's sight you are justified. That means God sees you as if you are sinless. Well, that's not true. We still sin. And yet God sees us as sinless because he doesn't see us. He sees Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And not only that, Jesus breaks the power of addiction. The Spirit of Christ is given to break the power of addiction. Whatever addiction it is, lust, greed, workaholicness, discontent, selfishness. You know, we, we, we Christians have those disgusting sins on the inside because we don't live life like unbelievers. At least we try to be serious-minded, right? But it's all those things on the inside that are often more disgusting. 
Jesus breaks addiction to sin by the power of his Holy Spirit. Not some AA plan, 12 steps to the clean life. Well, these things are good, good helps at times. I've seen them work many times. And yet it's the Spirit working through the means that God has provided, whether AA plans or even better, the Word of God, the fellowship of God's people, the study of His Word, prayer, faithfulness, and the use of the means. This is the, what God uses by the power of His Spirit to break addiction to sin. And He gives grace. Supplies to the front lines to empower the new nature to say no, 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 next time temptation comes knocking to defeat, to destroy, to put to death. This is grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the turning point now. Paul confesses faith in Christ alone. Who can change him? Who does, has changed him? And who even will change him? Future sins forgiven too. Beautiful thought. That's his third confession. So Paul confesses his sin Paul confesses his addiction, slavery to sin. Paul confesses faith in Christ. And there's a fourth confession. And then we have to turn to chapter 8, verse 1 for that. 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no guilt for sins committed. Maybe you've been fighting a long time against sin, or maybe you look back on your previous life, the last year, the last 10 years, the last whole lifetime, and there's things you've done in the past that you're ashamed of, you're ashamed of. Frankly, you're just ashamed of. You don't want your kids to know. And you feel guilty even from that. Or maybe it's more recent, and you feel guilt from sin. And, And Satan uses that to trap you and to chain you, as it were, and to enslave you from being the joyful Christian that God calls us to be, to rejoice in Christ. Or maybe you've fallen and then prayed for forgiveness, and, and God has forgiven you. And yet you feel so disgusting and dirty. And Satan says, how can you really be a Christian? How can someone like you, someone with your history, with your choices in life, with, with, how can you be a Christian? That's what Satan says. But by grace, by faith, Paul looks above the battle as it were. Faith lifts him up to look above the battle zone as it were and to say, but in Christ Jesus... There is no condemnation. Satan, you have no claim here. Even though I still find myself sinning at times, I still find this, this principle within doing these things I don't want to do, yet Satan has no claim here because Christ has forgiven me and God himself has justified me on the merits of Christ alone. And therefore, there is no condemnation. And before the throne, my sin has been forgiven. That's a faith. That's a statement of faith, isn't it? In Christ Jesus, we have no condemnation. And maybe you can only say that at times or with a weak voice. Maybe you can't shout it loudly, but it's true. It's true whether you feel it or not, if you're a true believer, because we are justified freely 
by the blood of Christ alone. And that leads Paul to the fifth confession, verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free from the law of sin and death. Liberty. Even while the battle rages, as we still struggle with sin, as we fight against those internal desires, as we try to do the right thing, yet we know our liberty is in Christ. Victory in Christ. Not our victory over the evil one. We don't trust in ourselves. Even if God gives us grace to say no, to crucify a desire, we don't get proud in ourselves because it's not us. It's not our victory. You see, the victory is in Jesus. And we only experience it in part at this time, but the final is coming. The consummation will soon come. And we are in Christ. We're not in slavery to the law. We're not in slavery to sin. We are free to serve Christ in the spirit of Christ. And that's really what chapter 8 is introducing. Beautiful chapter. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are not slaves to sin. By grace, we are redeemed from that. And so Paul makes this confession, these confessions, confession of sin, confession of slavery to sin, confession of faith in Christ alone, confession of forgiveness, and confession of liberty. Who is the true you? Which side are you on? You see, this is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. An unbeliever says, I'm not so bad. I'm, I'm not wretched, really. Yeah, I've got some things I'm working on. I've got some weaknesses, but I'm not that bad. But the true Christian knows how disgusting sin is because we see it in light of God's love, Christ's faithfulness, and the Spirit's, the Spirit's graces. The Christian knows the power of sin and the disgustingness of it. And this is also the difference between a weak Christian and a strong Christian. A weak Christian often stops at verse 24. Almost gives up in a sense, not really. But a weak Christian isn't able to go on to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. We unfortunately are paralyzed when we consider our own weaknesses and sins. And the Spirit is inviting us The Spirit is calling us. He's saying, but stop, stop looking at yourself. It's true, it's true, it's true, but stop, stop looking at yourself. Don't despair. Look at Christ. Look again at Christ. Look at victory in Him. Look at joy in Him. Look at hope in Him. Look at liberty in in Him. Don't stop with verse 24. Go on. Verse 25. And even, even chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation. And there is liberty. Chapter 8, verse 2. What is your heart confession in this battle zone? Are you despairing and doubting? Or are you resisting sin with faith in Christ, worked by His Spirit, with courage and boldness, worked by the Spirit of Christ? The confession of our hearts is made public by the way we live. And we're going to look at that now, but first, let's sing together. Psalter 103. We can sing now, I hope. Psalter 103. We'll look together, we'll sing together these four verses. It's very appropriate for this part of the sermon.
So Paul is teaching us something very important, or rather the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul's personal experiences, is teaching us a very important aspect of our lives as true believers. Who will deliver us? Not us, certainly not us. There is nothing in us, no good thing, as Paul says. But he teaches us to look up, doesn't he? To look to Christ. That's what he's doing here. He's sharing from his own experiences in a self-effacing way and the Spirit through him so that we also can resonate with this and be led in this way by the Spirit to look away from ourselves and to look up to Jesus Christ, to look away from our own inability and our own disgusting sins and our own addictions even that would so get us down and to look up to God's ability in Christ. And so Paul speaks with confidence, thanks be to God. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's confident, an assurance really, worked by the Spirit, confident in the promises of Christ. He shall deliver me. Even in the future, he shall deliver me. In fact, the next chapter then, let let me just, several things here actually, several confessions or thanksgivings really that we see. Verse 25, verse 25 is unpacked in the next chapter. And so as we unpack verse 25, we see it unpacked in the next next chapter, the first part anyway of chapter 8. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. First, Paul is thanking God for the liberty of, that he has in the Spirit of Christ. Believers are set free in Christ. Set free. You see, the allegiance has changed. The old nature is no longer the true you. It's still there, unfortunately, and we have to fight against it, but the true you is now the new nature. When I teach this in my church in Africa, I use the example of how a a pig... You see, a pig, the animal, the pig, right? We know the pig. It loves mud. And you can take a pig, and you can wash the pig, and you can make it all pretty. You can put a bow around the the head of the pig. You can put perfume on the pig, and you can put it nice there in the house. But as soon as it gets the chance, what is that pig going to do? It goes and finds the mud, doesn't it? Rolls in the mud. Pigs love mud. Pigs love mud. That's their nature. Their nature is a nature that loves mud. But then you have the kitten. You know the kitten, right? You see that little cat just stepping through, avoiding the mud. Even if you were to throw mud at it, don't do that. But if, if, if the cat was to get dirty, it'd be busy cleaning itself, and an hour later it'd be clean again, wouldn't it? You'd, you wouldn't see it, and then an hour later you'd see that cat clean all over again. Kittens hate mud. So Paul says, I have liberty. I'm no longer enslaved to this old nature, the pig. Yeah, the pig is still there, unfortunately, but that's not me. I am now a kitten. I hate mud. I hate sin. I hate disgustingness. I want to avoid it. Yes, even if I do get dirty, I'm busy by grace, cleaning, cleaning. Paul says I have liberty. I'm no longer enslaved to that lifestyle. I'm now free in Christ. Free. Life according to the Spirit. Sanctification, we'd call it. 
And he goes on in, in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 5, rather. For they that live according to the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that live according to the Spirit set their minds, he says, on the things of the Spirit. So are you living like the pig or are you living like the kitten? Believers are given new life. They want to avoid sin and fight against it. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that not only has he changed my nature, but he gives me a desire to fight against sin. And he frees me. He gives me a new life. A life not in the mud, figuratively speaking now, but a life of beauty and joy and delight. The way that God created us to live. He is busy recreating in me. And he goes on, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord because he gives me hope. Hope of future victory, even experienced in part now. Hope of eternal life. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ my Lord. Verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, give new life to your mortal bodies, your dying bodies, by the Spirit, His Spirit that dwelleth in you. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord because the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, now lives in me and though my body, even if I find myself doing the things of death, His Spirit lives in me. And though my dying body will one day decay in the ground, yet I will be raised in newness of life in Christ, future victory, future life, future joy, eternal Remember, Paul is struggling with this body of death, the this, this sinful addictions and the challenges that he's facing. And he wants us to look away from that. He wants us to continue the struggle, certainly. But he doesn't want us to be, be defined by that struggle. He wants, to, he wants us to have liberty and hope and life in Christ. If the Spirit lives within you, then your dying body will soon be raised sinless. So it's not a question of if we have sinned. It's rather a question of how you respond to sin that you've committed. What is your allegiance? Who is the true you? Verse 13 and 14, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit of Christ, that is, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The children of God, the true children of God, are not those who are perfect without sin in this life, but those who are being led by God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, away from sin into faith and life and liberty and hope. Those are the true children of God. So we confess with Paul, O wretched men, O wretched women that we are, O wretched boy that I am, or girl, and yet we trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, for righteousness, for victory even over the power of sin. And we seek to live for him in thankfulness for what he has done. Amen.